Well, good morning, family. Like Timothy said, my name's Justin Gates. I serve as a pastoral assistant here at Riverside Community Church, and part of that means I help lead the college ministry. Uh, so if you're a college student here today, or if you're a young adult, um, I know it was mentioned earlier, but we do have a young adults tubing adventure down the Saluda this Saturday at 1 o'clock. Um, the link for that is in the bulletin. If you sign up through that link, it'll be $10 um, instead of 20 So feel free to do that. If you have any questions or want more information, feel free to find me after the service or talk with Bridget. Um, we'll be happy to get you connected to that. Um, I've also heard through the grapevine that I might have upset some people that are older and more seasoned in their young adulthood. Um, <laughs> But I've also heard through that that uh, there may be an, uh, an older adult's uh, tubing adventure or skate time. Um, so feel free to talk to Wayne about that. He'll probably be upset I threw him under the bus, but you can talk to him. But with that being said, we're continuing our sermon series, The Parables of the Kingdom, as we journey through the different parables that Jesus gave us through his earthly ministry. And recall that a parable is a short metaphorical narrative that highlights a particular aspect of who God is or a particular aspect of God's kingdom. And this morning we'll be looking at the parable of the persistent widow in Luke's gospel. So if you can, if you haven't already, turn to Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. That's Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read our scripture text, pray, pray for us, and then dismiss the kiddos. I'll give you a second to be there. But Luke chapter 18, verses 1 and following, and it says, And he told them, being Jesus, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there is a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there is a widow in that city who kept coming to him, saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, Will we find faith on earth? And this is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, your word says that it's been breathed out by you. And because your word is breathed out by you, it's true. It bears all marks of your authority and power. And because it has your power and authority, it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training us in righteousness. And we pray this morning, Lord, that you will do these things in us through your spirit. And Lord, your word also tells us that it reveals all things pertaining to Christ himself. So Father, my prayer for us this morning is that your spirit will use your word so that your son is revealed to us, that we may know him more, that we may love him more. And as Timothy said earlier, Lord, that you, your word and your spirit will transform us so we become more like you. We give you this time and ask that you will be with us we ask that you will be glorified and that we'll see more of you this morning. It's Christ's name I pray. Amen. And so at this time, Children's Church, ages 7 to 10, is dismissed to the door on my left or your right.
The title of today's sermon is Being Persistent in Prayer. Being Persistent in Prayer. As of this morning, it's been 150 days since Russian forces have invaded the eastern parts of Ukraine. And uh, this war that was expected to end quickly has quickly become a war of attrition with seemingly no end in sight. And in the midst of anger, loss, and pain, the Ukrainian church has been persistently praying not only for their safety, but protection from the forces of evil. And they've also been praying persistently for a swift end, or a swift end to an unjust and unprovoked war. As of this morning, it's been 63 days since the Southern Baptist Convention has released a report detailing the horrendous decades of spiritual and physical abuse at the hands of people who are called to shepherd God's flock. Instead of protecting the vulnerable, the report shows how these individuals have instead turned to self-preservation and cover-up. And as recent as this report is, it's a symbol of the many, many years that individuals have been persistently praying for systemic change to occur, and ultimately for the survivors of such abuse to be heard and given true justice. And as of this morning, there are many of us here who have been persistently praying for God to enter into our lives as we cry out for help, as we want him to provide us with jobs, to bring healing to our frail bodies, to give us answers to questions that continue to reign in our minds and maybe even exonerate us from the hands of the legal system. As the number of days continue to grow, it's all too easy to believe that God has failed to move or that he no longer hears us. And as the days turn into months, we all might be tempted to lose our courage to keep praying for the same things over and over again, for it just doesn't seem to be working. And as the months turn into years, we may even be tempted to lose all faith that God can change our situation and we'll stop praying altogether. This suspension of faith and prayer is addressed in the parable that is before us. Luke introduces this parable by telling us that the main argument for us is that we, we are to always pray without losing heart or losing courage. But how is it possible for us to keep praying over and over again when the waves of life crash over us and our courage fails? I believe this morning that the text gives us three answers to this great question, that we can pray with courage and persistence in light of God's power, that we can pray with courage and persistence in light of God's heart, and that we can pray with courage and persistence in light of God's justice. And we'll first begin by looking at God's power. The backdrop of our parable comes from Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. In these verses, Jesus explains the already but not yet nature of his kingdom. He explains that it's already here because he is in their midst. But it's the final form of God's kingdom, the time when the Messiah will come to rescue his people, to bring peace and true righteousness. It's not here yet. We're still waiting for it. And after explaining these things, Jesus continues on to say that we must be patient for God's kingdom to fully come and that we must be ready for his appearing. And this idea of patient readiness continues with the parable that is before us. It opens up with the introduction of two characters, a judge and a widow who is seeking justice against her adversary. Our first character is a judge whom Jesus tells us does not fear God, nor does he have any respect or any regard for man. In other words, this judge is corrupt and not righteous. Being corrupt, his system of justice probably revolved around the taking up of bribes or helping those who had a high social standing. And he did that so they can get what they wanted. In essence, if he had money or social leverage to impose yourself on the judge, he'd probably rule in favor of you to give you what you were asking him. 
And while may, this may be good for those who have the resources and the social standing and the connections with this great power to have that ability to leverage the judge, it creates a system where justice is not served for those who don't have such privilege. And we're about to see this take place with the second character that Jesus introduces, and that's the widow. We aren't told much about this widow, but we can infer much of, about this widow and this, how it happened at this time period. You see, widows were often found to be the most vulnerable group of people in this population. Being a patriarchal society, a family's primary means of income and sustenance came through the husband. In the event of her husband's death, the widow would suddenly lose all economic and social support that she had, that her ability to support herself and her family was ultimately diminished at a quick rate. Moreover, the vulnerable position that the widows found themselves meant they were easily to be exploited. In many cases, widows were financially taken advantage of as they attempted to pay off the large sums of debt that their husbands incurred. And we aren't told why explicitly this widow was seeking justice, but this may be that reason that there's a debt that occurred against her. Someone was taking advantage of her, and she wanted that to be righted. Regardless of the reasoning, we know that the widow thought it was necessary to come to the judge, even though he was corrupt. But why is this? In light of Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, the widow probably had a good understanding of Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy, we're told that any leftover crop or anything that wasn't harvested that had fallen onto the ground was to be saved for the widow. Moreover, the law tells us that if anyone denies the widow justice, he is to be cursed. In all these things in the law, we see that God's intention was to show that the vulnerable was supposed to be supported by the law. They're supposed to be defended by the law. And this widow had no one to come alongside her, no one to advocate for her, no one to say, hey, this injustice has been given to her, let's support her. She had none of that. But what she did have was the law on her side. Because the law was on her side, she, all she could do in her vulnerability was to come to the person who had the power and authority to rectify her situation, the one who upheld the law. At least he was supposed to. He was corrupt. She had no money for a bribe and no social status to leverage power against this judge, but she did have one thing that she could do. And in verse 3, it tells us that she was persistent in her coming to the judge, that she came over and over again so that her situation would be rectified, that justice would be brought against her adversary. And maybe some of you this morning can identify with this widow. Then your weakness and vulnerability, you're desperately seeking for help. Take this one step further in your weakness and your vulnerability. Are you desperately seeking the help from things far removed from God, or are you seeking God himself? Are you seeking the God who is powerful enough to handle any problem that we throw at him? Are you keep coming to him over and over again, knowing that he has power to change things? Just as the widow was seeking the most powerful person that she knew, we too can seek God, who's the most powerful person in the universe. In our times of weakness, we can be like the psalmist and lift up our eyes to the hills to seek the one who helps us, who is powerful enough to make heaven and earth. In our times of weariness, we can seek the powerful God who never slumbers and prevents our feet from stumbling as we walk along the difficult journeys that lay ahead of us. In our times of vulnerability, we can seek the powerful God who is our keeper, who protects us from our enemies and shades us in the blazing sun as we walk down the road. Family, as we seek the God in all his might and power, the very things that seem intimidating to us and overwhelming to us begin to decrease in size as they fail in comparison to our great and infinite God. And as those things decrease in size and God increases in size, we can come to God praying persistently, knowing that there is nothing too big that he can't handle.
When we begin to lose the courage to pray, we could remember that our God's power will never falter. When we begin to lose the courage to pray, we can remember that our God's strength will uphold us even when we feel weak, when we feel vulnerable, when we feel weary. And if I can, let me ask, what are the things in your life that seem so overwhelming and so intimidating to you that you've stopped bringing them to God? Maybe it's a struggle in your marriage, or maybe it's trying to figure out what to do with your kids' schooling, or maybe it's trying to find a job or providing for your family. Whatever those things are, I want to encourage you to come to God today and say, Lord, this is so overwhelming. This scares me. But God, I know it doesn't scare you. I know you're powerful. Please help me. And family, if we do that, we know the Lord will use his power to be with you, to help you. But knowing God's power isn't the only reason that we can pray persistently without losing courage. We pray persistently and courageously in light of God's heart towards us. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. And it says, For a while being the judge, or for a while he being the judge, refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Here in these verses, Jesus tells us that the judge is very self-aware about his corruption, as he says himself that he respects neither God nor man. And while he refused for a while, the widow kept coming back, bothering the judge. That word for bothering literally means that he, she wanted him to do work. Essentially, this judge is annoyed by the fact that the, the widow keeps asking him to do his job. It seems as if he's refusing to do her, or give her justice to truly do his job because he's just lazy. Despite this, the judge eventually relents and gives the widow justice as it feels like the widow's beating him down. Literally, it means to give him a black eye. Now, some people say that this is a physical assault on the judge. I don't think that's the best interpretation. I think a better way to look at it is to say that this widow was basically, by coming to this judge, that he was, his reputation was being tarnished um, because he obviously wasn't doing his job as a judge. But it's from these two things um, that we see the true character of the judge reveal itself. The judge gives justice not out of concern of doing what's right, but rather he gives justice because his reputation is on, his, on the line, that he's more concerned about himself rather than the vulnerable. Family, do we sometimes believe that God's like this unrighteous judge, only answering us because he's annoyed at our coming and decides to, to give us what we need because he just wants us to go away? Or maybe do we sometimes believe that God's just too lazy to work on our behalf? Here, it's important to know that this parable is designed to be a contrast between God and this unjust judge. And that's why in verses 6 and 7, Jesus says, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? What Jesus is saying here is that if the unrighteous judge was moved to, to give justice following this widow's persistence, how much more who will God, who is wholly righteous, who is wholly good, who is wholly just, give justice to those who are his? How much more would he give justice to those he's chosen since the beginning of time? How much more justice will God give to those who are crying out to him from the very depths of their soul day and night? And you might be asking, well, Justin, how in the world do we know that this is true? How do we know that God will listen to his people and not be annoyed at their continual coming? And friend, if you're asking this question this morning, I want to tell you that this is true because that's God's very nature. That's his, that's his heart. 
On the screen is an excerpt from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 11, verses 28 and 29, and this is Jesus speaking, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. If you read this verse in the Greek, you'll see that Jesus opens these verses by making the exclamation, come. He is giving an excited declaration that eagerly invites those who are weary, who are tired, who are emotionally exhausted, and he's saying, run to me. His eager invitation shows the stark contrast between God and the judge. Even though the widow was in total desperation, the judge is telling her, go away, for I have nothing to do with you. While Jesus is saying, keep coming to me, bring all that you have to me. But why does he say this? In verse 29, it tells us it's because he's gentle and lowly in heart. That Jesus' heart, the core of his innermost self, is that of tenderness and humility. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland speaks of Jesus' gentleness and explains that Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not pointed fingers but open arms. Jesus' gentleness means that he is never easily annoyed, that he's not annoyed at all at us, that he never folds his arms across them at us, but rather it means that he opens his arms so we can run to him to receive his compassion, his love, his mercy, his grace. But it tells us that Jesus isn't just gentle, that he's lowly in heart. The word for lowly connotes the idea of being thrusted down by life's circumstances. Have you ever felt thrusted down by life's circumstances? In his letter to the Romans, Paul uses the same word to describe how we're not to be haughty, but to associate ourselves with the lowly, those who have been thrusted down by life's circumstances. Those who are considered the socially unimpressive, the vulnerable, the ones that people probably don't turn to. So Jesus, being lowly in heart, it means that his natural desire is to associate himself with the unimpressive, the ones who have been thrusted down by life's circumstances. That his heart's desire is to kneel down to be with them, to be on their level, to enter into the weariness and the struggles and the affliction that they're in and say, I'm here. Keep coming to me. To quote again from General Lowly, Ortland says of Jesus' lowliness that he's accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come to Jesus. In short, Jesus' heart, the place where his most instinctual reactions emanate, the very essence of who he is as God, is that of invitation and a welcome. He is never annoyed or frustrated with what we bring to him. He will never become too tired or worked up over the idea of us being persistent in coming to him, even if it's the same thing over and over again. In fact, he wants us to be persistent in coming to him. Even though he is perfect and powerful in every way, God's gentleness restrains his power so that he can be tender with and listen to those who are afflicted and say, come to me. And that's why in Psalm 3, David can declare with confidence, saying that he cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Even though God sits in his holy hill, the place that is most set apart, most sacred, most perfect, he descends from there to answer his people in their their times of need. He descends down from his heavenly dwelling to be with his people when the world rejects them and wants nothing to deal with them. 
Family, for us, this means we never have to worry about God being annoyed or frustrated with us whenever we come to him. When the world is tired of us pleading for reform at the hands of a legal system that needs change, we can keep crying out to God with the same intensity, asking for change, knowing that he will never turn us away or be annoyed. When we find ourselves in a season or a stage of life where he finds us feeling sad and wanting more, we can keep coming to God over and over again, knowing that he will welcome us with his open arms to give us comfort to be with us. And when we feel shame as we experience the same struggles of sin over and over again, we can keep running to God, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of unrighteousness every single time we come to him. God's heart is bent towards his people. He wants to be near his people. He wants to respond to the cries of his people. And because of all these things, we can be persistent in our prayers to God. As I was preparing the sermon, I began to think about a wonderful place filled with life and adventure. You probably are familiar with this place, but it's called the Hundred Acre Wood. <laughs> and within the Hundred Acre Wood lives a lovely guy named Pooh Bear. And as you sit down with Pooh Bear, you'll first notice that he has a strong affection for honey. But when you spend more time with him, you'll hear more of his gentle and soft voice. That you'll see how he's a friend who is faithful, always welcoming others to come join him. Family, this is who God is. His voice is tender and gentle, and his posture is one that provides a warm welcome and embrace every time we come to him. In light of all these truths, what do you need to bring to God prayerfully? What is that you've given up courage in praying for? In light of God's open arms, his continual open arms, can you bring those things to him today? Maybe you're here this morning, you don't really know who God is and all this sounds really foreign to you. Well, friend, if that describes you, I want to encourage you to seek God's heart, to learn more about who he is because he extends an open invitation to all people and he meets you wherever you're at. His word tells us that when we seek him, we will find him. And as you seek God's heart, he will surely reveal it to you. And as we've seen, we pray persistently in light of God's power. We pray persistently with courage in light of God's heart. And finally, we pray persistently and courageously in light of God's justice. Look at verse 8 with me. Jesus concludes this parable by saying that God will give justice to them, being the elect. And he does that speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Some important things to note here. Jesus tells us that God will surely bring justice to his people speedily. And this isn't something that we see here in the New Testament as Jesus is speaking in this parable, but it's something we see in the Old Testament as well. On the screen from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, it says that the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner. Our God is a God who is not like the corrupt judge. He does not show partiality, that he doesn't take bribes. He doesn't give justice out of returns for things to help him be more exalted, but rather he does that because he loves to do it. He does that because his, he's true to his word, that God is impartial, that he's truly and fully just. And he gives justice to the fatherless and the widow, the ones who are most vulnerable and oppressed. And his righteous justice will surely be brought to this world. And while this is true, we still exist in the already but not yet. 
Therefore, we must continue to wait for his justice to come. Even though God's timing is perfect, it's not our timing. As one day for the Lord is but a thousand years, and a thousand years is but a day. But we wait, or as we wait to bring, for God to bring his justice, we know that when it comes, it will certainly be here, and it will be swift. And this is why Jesus ties together being persistent in prayer with faith in his return. Faith requires us to wait upon God to fulfill the promises that he's given us. Remember, faith isn't just, just isn't this blind hope, but rather it's a total confidence in knowing that God will bring about good because he's done so in the past. The waiting we endure serves as God's mechanism so that our faith can be strengthened and bolstered, so that we see more of who he is as we wait upon him. In his commentary on this passage, Warren Wearsby speaks of God's delay in answering prayer by saying that God's delays are not the delays of inactivity, but of preparation. God is always answering prayer. God works in all things at all times, causing all things to work together to accomplish his purposes. It's important for us to remember that God's delay or his apparent silence in answering our prayers might be the result of him preparing us for what is to come next. God sometimes answers our prayers by saying no, as hard as that is. But this isn't because he doesn't want to give us good things. It's because he knows ultimately what is good and best to give us. He's a loving father that says, you can't have that right now because I have something so much better in store for you. Or he says, I need you to wait upon me because I'm helping you grow to be strengthened for what is the next thing in your life. Family, if you live in light of the truth that God will surely execute his justice and respond to us in the right ways in the right time, we can have the courage to pray persistently because we know that praying will not be in vain. It's impossible for our God to change or lie. Therefore, we know that whatever he says will surely happen. His justice will be given, and he will answer us as we cry out to him from his holy hill. And we know this because there's a greater issue of justice that needs to be dealt with. That God's impartiality and zealousness for true justice meant that he had to bring a swift and total justice to sin. In one way or another, we've all sinned against the righteous God. And to continue to use this courtroom analogy, as we stand trial in God's courtroom and the list of sins we've committed against God and to one another, as they're listed out in front of us, and next each one says guilty, guilty, guilty. Part of that means that the wages of sin is death, and that the sins that we've committed against God and one another deserves the death penalty. And as we wait to hear our sentence to death, Jesus, being our great defense attorney, stands up and says, let their death penalty be my death penalty. He says, I'll take the full extent of your righteous judgment so they don't have to. May their sins be forgiven. And Jesus then turns to us and says, your sins are no longer held against you. Go in peace. And brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus did. That being fully God, his sinlessness gave him the ability to fully atone or make total amends to God for our sins. And being fully human, it means he's able to stand in our place so that he will take upon himself our sin and put upon us his righteousness so that we can stand fully clean and unashamed before God. That we can enter into his open arms as he invites us to come to him persistently. And family, if you believe this and cling to this with your entire heart, or with your entire heart to this promise, we know with certainty that you are fully secure with God. And that's why Jesus tells us in John 10 that he gives to those who follow him eternal life, that they may never perish. And he tells us that no one can snatch them out of his hands. 
And that's why Paul expands upon this in his letter to the Romans, saying that there's nothing in this world, nothing of this world, or nothing out of this world that will ever separate us from the love of God. And it's through this eternal and certain promise that God gives us the ability to keep coming to him courageously and persistently with all that we have. That if we've given up everything to follow Jesus and believe in his saving work, he will surely never cast you away. And the light of Jesus never casting us out and wanting us to pray without losing heart, I'd like us to do that now. As the band is going to come back up here in a second, and after I close this in prayer, we're going to have a few minutes to to reflect and to pray. And during this time, if there's anything that you've came in here with that's been heavy on your heart or something that's come up during the sermon, I want you to persistently see God in it. And a part of that, I've asked some of the elders and some members of the women's care team to be available in the back to pray with you and to pray for you. Or maybe there's a trusted friend who's sitting next to you and you say, hey, friend, can you pray for me? I want to encourage you to use this time to come before God knowing that his heart is bent towards you, knowing that he is a powerful God who can change any situation, and knowing that whatever he says will surely come true. So in light of that, I'm going to pray real quick, but then we're going to have some moments for you just to reflect and to spend time with the Lord together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and praise you that you are accessible allowing us to run into your arms with all that we have so we can experience your tender comfort and your divine power. Lord, this morning I pray that as my friends come to you, that they will meet with you wherever they are at, that you will minister to them precisely how they need to be ministered to, and that you will help them to give all of their burdens to you, knowing that you welcome them with open arms. Father, heal us in the ways that we need healing. Minister us to the ways that we need encouragement. Convict us in the ways that we need to repent and come to you asking to be changed through the power of your spirit. Lord, we ask that you will be following us now as we come to you. We pray.